Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 572 on the Black Pew Bibles. Uh, in this passage, uh, in this passage, Ahaz is the king of Judah at this time. He's a descendant of David, and he's faced at this moment with a threat of violence from the northern tribes of Israel who have allied themselves with Syria against Judah. Um, and Ahaz at this time is trusting in Assyria for his um, salvation rather than in the deliverance of God. And thus God speaks here to him to assure his people that he will deliver them. And so this is what the Lord says to Ahaz. Verse 10. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And now uh, we'll return to Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. And this passage takes us roughly 750 years after the time of Ahaz. And as prophesied, the virgin has conceived. And these are Mary's words in response to what the Lord has done among his people. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned home. Now let us go before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, you are a good and gracious God, always showing steadfast love and faithfulness to your people whom you have redeemed with the precious blood of your son. I pray, Lord, stir up our hearts within us by your word, the word that you have spoken, that our minds would be renewed and that our lives would be transformed. Give us a greater joy, a greater confidence in your salvation as we listen to your word preach to us as we hear it read 
so that we would trust not in our own understanding, uh, but in every word that comes from your mouth. Let us not be overcome with worry uh, about what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear or by the stress of life or by uh, the weakness and pain of our fragile bodies. For we have read this morning of the words you spoke long ago to your prophet, through your prophets, uh, and you brought it to pass that you saved your people and your apostles preached the good news and you have preserved this good news in your church to this very day. And so I pray that you would be with the preaching of this gospel as Pastor Lee brings it to us. Lord, we magnify you together as your people, as Mary did so many generations ago. We pray all these things in the name of our beautiful Jesus, beautiful Savior. Amen. Merry Christmas. Once again, it's nice to be able to say that a few times, isn't it, during the, during the year? And it, it seems to fit. So Merry Christmas to you. Greetings to you from the brothers and sisters in Christ in more northern Maryland today who are worshiping the Lord too and all our PCA churches and other churches as well. And it's good to gather together and be with God's people on this, the Lord's Day. It's wonderful to be in this place, a very festive sanctuary, I must say. Thank you all for the decorations and the poinsettias this morning, but also thank you for the wonderful singing this morning and leading of the singing. Uh, last night, uh, we, Nancy and I feel kind of overwhelmed because we went to the Kennedy Center where the Gettys, you know about the Gettys, who have who've written so many of our favorite hymns together, had a, had a sold-out house of a Christmas carol sing, and they called it an Irish Christmas. And so we feel kind of overwhelmed here with carols and so on, which is a good, a good feeling. And it's to be continued not only today, but next Sunday as well. So it's great to be with you. We have been taking a bit of a journey through the Bible, essentially. You might recall, if you've not been with us, well, if you weren't with us, you wouldn't recall. But you might recall, those who have been with us, that we started with, what was God doing in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ? We began with God in heaven, in which we discover that War was in heaven when the angel Lucifer and a bunch of other angels rebelled against God in heaven, and he cast them down to earth, probably just before he created Adam and Eve, because of their tremendous sin and rebellion against God. We have seen that that sin, of course, has carried all the way through to our very day, and that war going on with God, and it continued then with Adam and Eve, who decided to go their own way and, and sinned did the one thing God asked them not to do, and they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And of course, all of life, all of history follows from that, and the consequences of their sin have been very, very great, as are the consequences of our own sin. And the story of the Bible in this book, The Greatest Stories Ever Told, is a story about God's redemption and his plan of salvation in spite of man's sin, isn't it? And all the stories of the Old Testament help lead us there. So we looked a little bit at what God was doing with some of the angels before Jesus came. We looked at Elizabeth and Zechariah, who also were pregnant at the same time as Mary, more or less. And we saw what God was doing with them. We, saw, we talked a little bit last week about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit has been involved from Genesis 1-2 to 
to the very end of the Bible, and he still continues his presence with his people today, and with us, a more personal touch, you might say. And I mentioned last week that the Holy Spirit does many things, but one of the things he does is he brings order out of chaos. And we will see how he will do that at the end times when that day, great judgment day comes. But we also can see it as he brings some order to the chaos of our lives. Many are the testimonies of people who said, my life was absolute chaos. I didn't know what to do. My life was a mess. And then Jesus came. And they will talk about how in that midst of that, were all the chaos taken away immediately? Of course not. But Jesus came and brought some sense and order. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit. So we examined some of those things and more over the last few weeks. And now we come to the day of the last people who were alive, who, who, were, who were part of Jesus' life before he was born, and that's Mary and Joseph. A few thoughts about those in a few minutes here. But I wanted to also say something else this morning. On the way here today, we try and find some uh, Christian music, of course, to help us as we come to worship with you. And one of the stations had a song by a gospel quartet called It's About the Cross. And Nancy and I were struck with the words of this. And I wanted to mention this to you today because we can talk about all the details and some of the people and the angelic beings that were involved in the coming of Jesus Christ and Mary and Joseph. But sometimes you can make too much of those things. Sometimes angels can be given a prominence they don't really deserve. And sometimes, as you know, Mary can be given a prominence that really is not hers to take. And the words of this gospel song go like this. It's not just about the manger where the baby lay. It's not all about the angels who sing for him on that day. It's not all about the shepherds or the bright and shining star. It's not all about the wise men who traveled from afar. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. It's about the cross. It's not all about the good things in the life I've done. It's not all about the treasures or the trophies that I've won. It's not about the righteousness that I find within. It's all about his precious blood that saves me from my sin. It's about the cross. It's about our sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once and coming again. It's about the cross. So in this journey today, I just want to remind you that that is really what all this is about. We might spend some time, brief time, on these personalities of the Bible. And they are very, very critical and important to the Christmas story. But, of course, it all boils down to Jesus. And we're going to talk specifically about him in a more detailed way next Sunday Christmas Sunday, because it's all really about him and what he came to do. So, take your Bibles, would you please, as we turn to our text for today, although we'll be jumping around to other places in the Bible, to Matthew 1, familiar passage to all of you, just following the genealogy of Christ, which Matthew wrote because that was important to the Jewish folk who were his hearers. 
And then we read this from Matthew. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are here today because of Jesus. We are looking at some of these things in the Scripture because of Jesus. We want to live our lives so that you are glorified and Jesus is named and pleased and people would know that he is Lord of our life. Father, I pray that you might use the words of the Scriptures today to encourage us, inspire us, maybe challenge us. Lord, again, I pray, may my words be your words. And may we leave here today having even more of a little sense and maybe a taste of how fantastic is this story of Jesus' birth that we celebrate in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. I do believe this is the book of the greatest stories ever told. Greatest stories ever told right here. None can match them. And other great stories out of history and literature often take their cues from what happens in this book. And you English majors, I hope, would recognize that and see that. And even though there are cultures that did not have the Bible or know much about the Bible, nonetheless, God has imprinted on our hearts his law and certain things, and they come out in our stories. Let me tell you a story this morning that already has been hinted at in our Bible reading. And it was a long time ago, maybe 2,600 years ago, there was a very bad king. The Bible is full of very bad kings, but this one, you might say, was maybe one of the worst. He was in a line of good kings, actually. His father and grandfather had been king, and marching ahead of him, his son was a very good king as well, but not this guy. He was a bad king. He was a king of Judah. And he lived, as was mentioned this morning, about 700-something B.C. And he was really a man much like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when he just simply wanted to do things his way. In fact, he did certain things his way, which were to the shame of Israel and to the judgment of God eventually. He brought child sacrifice back into Judah. He had people begin to worship the stars and the heavens and the planets and the sun. And he brought all kinds of pagan practices into the culture, things that his father and grandfather did not do. He was a bad king. 
And one day he was probably sitting in his throne or contemplating what bad things to do next when he got word that two kings near him wanted to come and attack him and take over Judah. The bad king, only thanks to God, had a prophet that worked with him, so to speak. His name was Isaiah. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah one day to give a word of uh, advice to King Ahaz, was his name. And he was contemplating and wondering about what was going to happen about these two kings, of which he had word they were going to attack him. And so he made some plans, and God said, it's interesting, God, you see, is at work even in the lives of rulers and kings and presidents and prime ministers who do not really love him or trust in him, or they may only give him lip service. God is still at work in those entities. And this particular occasion, it says in Isaiah 7 that God said, well, Ahaz, you're going to be basically okay. Would you like a sign? And Ahaz, in his arrogance and stubbornness and pride, said, nah, nah, I don't need a sign. I don't need a sign. It's almost like dissing God. Sound familiar? Rulers do that. We do that. And if you turn to Isaiah 7, you'll see something interesting, and we read it this morning. In the midst of this, midst of Ahaz's rebellion, he said, I don't care for a sign, when suddenly... God interjects into this narrative, this story, a little parenthesis. But wow, what a significant parenthesis. It's as if God is saying, Ahaz, you don't want a sign from me after I offered you a sign of how I'm going to take care of you? I'll tell you what a sign will be. Here's a sign you need to be keeping in mind. And he says to Ahaz, behold, this is Isaiah speaking, not Ahaz. Ahaz, behold, the Lord's giving you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this, as some one commentator put it, kind of like a little theological treatise right in the midst of something else going on. But you see, God is a God who is very concerned about his plan and promises and purposes, and right there he reminds Ahaz that he is really nothing, for there's a, you don't want a sign from me? Well, I'll give you a sign. It's going to be some sign. As a matter of fact, we find that God not only says something in Isaiah 7, but he says in Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, this, not too much time after this, he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, the light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The seal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's another sign for you, Ahaz. 
But wait, there's more. In Isaiah 11, the prophet says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes, but what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and on it goes. Ahaz, the bad king, had all kinds of information given to him about what was going to be happening. And God, I think, was trying to encourage him to pay attention to what was happening now and trust him for all these things. Ahaz lived a while longer, and then he died. And his son Hezekiah picked up a good mantle after that, oh, by the way. That's another time, another story. This is all to say, folks, as we look at our passage today, that, that the passage in Matthew 1 of an angel coming to Mary and Joseph was all part of a special promise that God had been working for centuries. God is the God of promises. In fact, the Old Testament's full of them. If we had a time, we'd maybe go around the room and say, what are some of the promises of God that you can think about in the Old Testament and the coming Messiah? And one of the promises certainly would be uh, that Abraham would be the father of a multitude uh, uh, of many nations. And his, his descendants would be like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea. That's a great promise for you. In Genesis 1 and 3, we find that we've, God promised that the seed of woman would bruise the serpent's head. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, this is the first time the evangel is mentioned and that there was a promise of somebody coming who will destroy this serpent, that is, the devil. God's a God of promises. Every time we see a rainbow in the sky, I hope you will remember God's promise that he would never destroy the earth in that way again. The rainbow is, by, is our symbol, by the way, not someone else's. It's a Christian symbol of God's promises to his, his people that he would save them in Jesus, the ark. So we find that when it comes to the story of Mary and Joseph, we have to be reminded of the special promises that were all part of his coming. And Mary and Joseph knew some of these, no doubt, because they were people who had the scriptures read in their homes, we believe. Joseph, went to, uh, Joseph had gone to school with other young men in the community up till about third or fourth grade or so, and he was given the Torah and the scriptures, and they knew, knew some of these stories and these promises. And the promises are a critical part of all this, not to mention Micah 5.2, which mentions that there'll be a little city called Bethlehem in this whole promise. And all this was about to come true in this passage we read this morning in Matthew 1. So we find that the story of Mary and Joseph really is, number one, a story of a special promise, an incredible promise, one that was not understood very much, certainly not by a bad king, Ahaz, and not often understood by those who had to live through the promises and sacrifices and the, the things God said about who, the Messiah. People didn't understand those things fully, but nonetheless, they were special promises in the God's people Live for that day. And we are told that many young women and Jewish women 
where I often wonder, would they be the one that might be the fulfillment of Isaiah 7? Well, am I going to be the virgin that might have Emmanuel? You know, the Bible prophecies are really critical. And if you're here today wondering about Christianity or wondering if Christianity is something to be considered, you need to consider this. There are over 300 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. 300. Somebody did some calculations, and I have to go by what they said because I would never be able to do this. But someone figured out that the probability of one of those fulfilling, one person fulfilling eight of those prophecies, the chances of one person filling eight of those prophecies is one to 17 zeros. I think that's quadrillion. One in 100 quadrillion chances that one of those prophecies in eight. Somebody that same, probably the same person said, the probability of one prophecy coming true of 48 prophecies, it would be one to the 157th power. One times 10 to the 157th power. That's, in lay terms for me, that's infinitesimal. That's like it won't happen. Someone else said, what's the chance of one prophecy in 300 coming true? Only one is important, and that's that Jesus came. Prophecies in the Old Testament, among these we read this morning, are really critical because God is a God in preparing for the coming of Mary and Joseph and sending us them to earth. There are promises all along the way to give people hope and encouragement. When people decided not to go with that hope and decided to go with the circumstances around them, generally bad things happened, as always is the case when you take your eyes off of the God of the universe. But Matthew 1, the story of Mary and Joseph, is also about a very special plan. And I know you know that. Christmas is a time to remember this special plan and design of God and the giving of his only son. But this was, a, this was a special plan, maybe in one sense, because there was not a kingly drama plan. His plan to have Mary and Joseph didn't involve robes and hats and horses and chariots and swords and whatever, like you might expect a king to have when he came to earth. And some Jewish people were expecting the king Messiah to come that way. But he, God, in his own design, and his own plan, said, don't think so. No kingly drama here. And today, we kind of create a bit of drama when we think about the Bethlehem and Jesus being born and so on. But really, it was a special plan in that there was no kingly drama. Nobody could say, oh, yeah, that was, that was, that was King Jesus that was born. I was there. They had a big robe, a red carpet was laid out after he was born and so on. Nobody could say that about Jesus because he was just born in a lowly place called Nazareth. Bethlehem, excuse me. They're from Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem, an ordinary couple. We find from extra-biblical sources that Mary's, uh, Mary's uh, dad might have been called Joachim, by the way. And her mom might have been Anna of Bethsaida. We're not sure about that. We know that Mary had probably a sister, Salome, mentioned in Luke. And so Mary came from an ordinary family, not a very wealthy family. We, Nancy and I visited um, Nazareth a few months ago when we finally got to Israel, the trip I wished I'd taken when I was 30. 
But we got to Israel and visited Nazareth. And they have a recreation of a Nazareth town there put together by the YMCA, of all things, who have kept a Christian influence on the heart of Nazareth, which is an almost all-Arab and Muslim town. Nazareth is small. It was very small. Maybe a, maybe a hundred families on this day. And it was very, very hilly. And we were very excited the day we visited because they had not too long ago discovered maybe what was the wine press of the village of Nazareth right where the YMCA operation is going on. And it's on a hill and it's carved into the rock and so on. And Nazareth was a, a bump, a rocky bump on the road. Very lowly place. Both of them were from there. They were, ordinary, they were just an ordinary couple, as is often the case with, God, with the people God chooses, right? Like uh, Jonah, Noah, even Moses could be considered ordinary once he left the splendors of Egypt. Joseph and Mary were an ordinary couple. They were obedient to God, a man. The Bible says that Joseph was righteous, and they probably were a very obedient couple. In those days, you could be betrothed when you were quite young if you were a woman, and so Joseph and Mary had been promised to each other, and this was part of the dilemma. It was like a marriage, but it hadn't been consummated yet, of course. And that's why Mary had such consternation with this, and Joseph as well. And Joseph, being a righteous man, wanted to make sure there was no shame on his bride-to-be and elected maybe to put her aside in a quiet divorce. Well, thanks be to God, there was an angel involved. And God knew what was on their hearts, and he sent an angel to encourage them and say, fear not. And, of course, the birth of Jesus Christ was, in a sense, like none other. On the other hand, it was a birth very much like others. In this case, in a manger, maybe a cave. But however it was and wherever it was and what the details were, we know this, that the promise Messiah was coming just in time. As Galatians says, for that's when Jesus came in the fullness of time. So many other things were happening in these days, not to mention the the decree for a census that was sent out by Herod. Again, this morning on the way to church here, we heard another song about, about isn't that interesting how God would use a, a what seemingly innocuous event. Let's count some people and bring them together. But God used that and used the powers that be in those days to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, which was the place that God said Emmanuel would be born. Oh, so many exciting details in the Christmas story, aren't there? The more you look at it, the more more incredible it becomes all the time. So we find, though, that this event, when Mary and Joseph were pregnant and were about to give birth, was an incredibly special plan following incredible special promises. But, of course, the whole situation, as I began this sermon today, was for a special purpose. Because Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Jesus means, Yeshua means, Yahweh saves. And we find that that's exactly what was going on in this. If anything else you remember, we remember about the Christmas story. And the reason we are sitting here enjoying fellowship with God's people today is because Jesus came to save his people from their sin. 
two important parts to that little phrase which are really critical. And that is to say this. Number one, Jesus came to save who? His people. He said in John, I am the great shepherd. My sheep know my voice. They will hear my voice and they will come to me. We find in that little phrase, of course, a tremendous theology of how God in his providence draws his people to himself. It's not our decision, it's his decision to bring us to him. And when Jesus got older and we realized, began to realize the full story of his, his coming, we need to understand that Jesus didn't come pleading for us to come to him. He didn't come standing across a line on a, 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 or even a door and say, come to me, I'm just waiting for you. I hope you'll come to me. I, I want you, but can you, will you make the decision to come to me? Jesus came more as a king, and he said, I want you. My Father has created you. He has created a special people for me, and I'm coming to grab you and to bring you into my kingdom and adopt you as my brothers and sisters in myself and in the Heavenly Father. He came to save his people, his people. And we know the Bible is full of other references and reminders to us that, that he is the potter, and we are the clay, and he can do with us what he wills. And if we're a Christian today, we're a Christian because of God's sovereign work in sending Jesus Christ to a lonely manger to then eventually secure our salvation and bring us into glory. That's powerful. I grew up in a wonderful Christian home and a church that loved Jesus Christ and taught Jesus Christ, but they, they didn't teach that part of the Bible and that part of the Christmas story. It always ended up with, when are you going, when are you going to come to Christ? When are you going to, when are you going to, to make a decision. Now, it is important. The person becomes a Christian by faith and by hearing and repent, faith and repentance and coming to Christ. But my vision of Jesus was as a, didn't have a lot of power to, to bring me. I had to, I had to do it. Okay, I'll do it. I'll come to you. But that's not what is hidden in this verse of he will save his people. Jesus came to secure us, grab us, take us. Find us, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, bring us into his family. And, of course, he came, secondly, to save us from our sin. If we don't recognize that we're sinful, then we don't, won't recognize our need for Christ. And that's why in this church and other churches across the land, we'll have a time of confession of sin that we might be ever mindful of our need for a continuing Savior to help us with our daily sins, our sins of pride and neglect and our sins of anger and our sins of irritation, our sins of rolling our eyes at the wrong time, or whatever our sins might be. Jesus came to save us from our sin. And of course, the good news is that 
There'll be someday when all that sin will be done away with completely and finally when the lowly babe wrapped in swaddling clothes will come as a king with all his angels and the hosts and destroy the earth with fire and come as our judge and bring us into glory. Jesus' birth is all part of a greater story, isn't it? I think it's important as we think about Mary and the birth of Jesus Christ, that we know that our faith, the Christian faith, is rooted in history. It's rooted in over 300 prophecies of Jesus that were all fulfilled. It was rooted in the history of God's presence with his people and his clear declaration that he would be a God to his people and to their children. And every time we baptize somebody, we are reminded of that covenant promise. We are Christians today because God began his work of bringing people to Christ in Genesis chapter 3. For Christianity didn't start in Acts. It started back after Adam and Eve sinned and God provided for them. And though the name Christian wasn't used, of course, until Jesus left the earth, we know that all those believers who are now in heaven, we can claim to be Christians because we are there by the merit of Jesus Christ who left the glories of heaven to become a person like us and die on our behalf. We need to remember the great, our faith is rooted in a huge narrative of incredible stories and promises and a plan that God's been has had an effect since the beginning of time. When we say that Jesus is unique, we need to understand that he is unique in the most, the deepest sense of the word unique. There is none other like him. Sometimes people struggle, don't they, when it comes to religious faith, and they say, well, I don't, I don't know if, I, you know, I don't know about Jesus. I think, you know, there are a lot of ways to heaven. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Isn't that a common argument? Many ways to God. doesn't really matter who, which way you choose, and if you choose the way of Buddha or choose the way of Krishna or choose the way of Muhammad, well, all at the end of the day, it's all going to be the same. That's not true, is it? Jesus is unique, and you, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to reckon with that he is the most unique person who's ever lived. He either, as C.S. Lewis, I think, put it, he's a lunatic or a liar, or he's telling the truth. Jesus Christ. This story of his birth and Matthew, Mary, and Mary and Joseph's um, ordinariness and their willingness to be used by God is also encouraging us, I think, to live a life with thanks for the fact that God's promises and his plans and his purpose are still working today. And when you doubt if some of the things happening in your life seem to not make much sense, they seem a little chaotic, if you belong to Jesus, know that there's a plan and a purpose that God is working out for you. We will not know all the details today, but someday we will. Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world because there's no one like him in the world. So Mary and Joseph, we don't want to put too much of an emphasis on either of them. We don't want to pray to them. We don't want to venerate them in such a degree that the whole business of Jesus is kind of shunted aside. He is the focus of our life today. He is the focus of our worship. He is the focus 
of our Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to think that we are a part of this incredible historic plan of yours and promise of yours is very humbling. To think that you might choose us, Marylandites, who are going our own way when you chose us to become part of your eternal family and become a star or a piece of sand of the sea that you promised to Abraham is incredible. Father, to see how you maneuver the dealings of politics and a night of no hotels and a pregnancy of a young woman, how you wove it all together for the birth of Jesus, your son. Father, how incredible to think that that this promise which you gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head, has already been accomplished when Jesus came and then died on the cross. We can march forward with confidence and hope through the ups and downs of our earthly lives. Father, if there's someone here today that is still wrestling with who is Jesus and who do they want to follow in this life, I pray that they might consider some of these incredible things about our Savior. That they might repent and believe and run to hear Jesus welcoming, reaching out arms today. We praise you for all these things. In Jesus' name, his people said, amen. Amen.